Hallelujah. This day, according to the song that we have just sung and Psalm 106, Father, we, those who are believers in the hearing of this message today, in this room, confess that we remember the miracle that you have wrought in our own hearts when you resurrected us from the death of sin unto newness of life in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. We are new creatures in Christ our Lord. We once were at enmity with you. We were lost in our transgressions and sins. We were hell-bent and hell-worthy sinners. Yet in Christ was redemption and atonement accomplished, and it was applied to our hearts by the sovereign power of the mighty Holy Spirit, who worked a miracle and waking to newness of life what was once blind and deaf and dumb and dead. We thank you, Lord, that we now have been given spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, a mouth to proclaim the glories of Christ our Lord, and a mind, even the mind of Christ, to understand, we pray more each day, the glories of the great gospel. Lord, we acknowledge that all these faculties are only because you have opened up our eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that you would do so through the means of grace, the proclamation of your word this day. Equip and enable your church to stand with confidence and boldness in a day where these things are required. Lord, equip your church to shine all the brighter, Lord, when darkness seems to swallow up the consciousness of the world in which we live. Lord, and strengthen the message and sharpen the tongues and equip the lips of those who are called to bring forth the proclamation of Christ died for sinners such that the ears of the lost are drawn to salvation, faith and repentance, and walking in the way of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that the lost would repent as a result of your word being proclaimed, unadulterated and unequivocally from the mouth of the redeemed and from the pulpits of your church and from the throats of the convicted ones. Lord, I thank you that you have ordained these times and that you are in sovereign control of every aspect right down to the molecules that make up our material existence. We acknowledge as much and repent of believing any less. And now as we turn to your word, would you open our ears the wider and eyes all the more to see the glories of Christ revealed throughout all of scripture. May this be to the praise of your great name, the name of Jesus, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what a glorious honor and privilege we have to open up the Holy Scriptures, the most precious book, the most precious thing of all, and the human experience, the very words of Christ recorded, wherein we see the God of salvation revealed, and also the worthiness, or the judgment worthy our sin. In Psalm 106, the author has detailed elements of hope against the backdrop of systemic human sin. The title of last week's message, which covered the first half of Psalm 106, was What the Wicked Forget, which is the same thing as What the Righteous Remember, which makes up the title of this week's message. The wicked forget certain things, the righteous remember certain things, and this is the theme of Psalm 106. Under this heading, we've divided the psalm into multiple parts. Let me give you a quick review. Last week, we learned that the wicked forget, but the righteous remember the true hope of glory, verses 1 through 6. We also learned that the righteous remember the source of provision, the true source of where all things come. Number three, the cost of rebellion. And number four, the place of promise. This morning, we will learn more of what the righteous remember and the wicked forget, and considering verses 28 through 48. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to draw our attention to hard truths 
that yield holy fruit. Psalm 106 is full of difficult truths. Yet there are these hard truths that yield holy fruit when they are held and, and understood and processed according to God's purposes and the heart and consciousness of a believer. With that introduction, would you stand again out of reverence for the Word of God? And let us behold the Scriptures proclaimed in your hearing today as we consider Psalm 106, verses 28 through 48. Here is the infallible Word of God. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Verse 40, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied, pitied by all those who held them captive. Verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen, praise the Lord. Again, before you're seated, let all the people say amen. You may be seated. With your amen, you just provided your assent to the certainty and truthfulness to the word of God. Amen is not just a cliche. It should not be reduced in familiarity to something passing or trivial or trite. The term amen is a verbal confession that you believe absolutely what you have just heard is absolutely true. And so it is. Psalm 106 has instructions for us today. It tells us the following. When society has given the remnant, that is those that remain among the people of God, every reason to despair... Because society has defiled themselves with the rituals of covenant suicide, the psalmist reminds us that the Lord, the God of Israel, is from everlasting to everlasting. Nations come and go, kingdoms rise and fall, kings are born and are killed, but our God is from everlasting to everlasting. In the testimony of greater scripture, he is the same, in fact, yesterday, when Psalm 106 is written today, 
in August 2020 and forever, forever, he will not change. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord, the God of Israel, is from everlasting to everlasting, and he can raise the dead in sin, even those who are dead in the graves, if you will, of Kibroth Hatava. And that was the Hebrew, which being translated means graves of craving. It was a cemetery that was named for the cause of death in the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And this was just one incident that is detailed in Psalm 106 among many to contrast the sinfulness of the people with the steadfast love and holiness of the Lord. In Psalm 106.15, for instance, it says, He gave them what they asked, that was the quail that flew in from the desert, yet He sent a wasting disease among them. If you turn back to the record, you will find that thousands were buried that day to illustrate the consequences of sin. The wages of sin are, in fact, death. In the latter half of the psalm, the part that we consider today, our author recalls three additional incidents in the history of Israel that are central to our understanding and valuing of the steadfast love of the ultimate covenant keeper. That's one of the lessons and messages and themes of Psalm 106. The only one ultimately who can and does keep the covenant and gives you, in fact, the ability to be a covenant keeper is Yahweh, whose name means as much. The Lord, the one whose steadfast love is extended to us on the basis of his promises, never fails in his covenant keeping. This record emphasizes that the love of God is not promiscuous. God does not forgive sin without atonement. God's love is not like the love of man. God does not love everybody all the time, time in the same way, under the same conditions and so forth. To believe as much is to believe in a promiscuous love of God. God does not forgive sin, does not extend love without atonement. Uh, Psalm 106 and the whole testimony of Scripture teaches us as much. Furthermore, he does not love at the cost of justice. A holy God must have justice satisfied in order for him to extend forgiveness and love. In short, God, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, the true Lord, the only one that exists, does not wink at sin. A number of incidents of apostasy, that is, falling away from one's professed faith in Israel, in fact yielded the very same judgments as those that were levied in the land of Ham if you categorize them by plague. That is to say, the consequences of those who are dwelling in Egypt of denying the one true sovereign were ten plagues issued in their land. Similarly, the consequences of denying their sovereign, the Israelites, received plagues as well. They broke out time and again in the camp, illustrating the consequences of forgetting the mighty works of the Lord and then turning and worshiping idols. Plagues accompanied the people of God in the golden calf worship incident and the quail gluttony incident that we referenced in the rebellion of Korah and the Baal of Peor worship incident in our text today and the bad report from Canaan the faithless spies who came back with a report that Canaan was inhospitable to the people of God. And these are just to name a few, just to name five. Five incidents where plague broke out because of the wickedness of the people. Now as book four, you'll notice in your Bible perhaps at the close of verse 48 of Psalm 106, there's a heading that says book five. That means Psalm 107 is the first of the fifth collection of Psalms in the Psalter, book five. Fourth is the second to last book, and so this psalm closes on this note. The, Psalter clo or the fourth book of the Psalter closes with this historical psalm, which concludes, like most of the final hymns in each book, with a call to worship 
a call to worship the one true God and bidding the people to affirm the absolute certainty of his word and character where they are called to echo their amen to the word proclaimed in their hearing, even as we have done today. That is to say, we are to give our assent, those who are his followers, believers. We are to direct that amen to the Lord, the one who is mighty indeed, the one who is steadfast in his love. And may Psalm 106 move us to do the same today. Continuing our heading from last week, let us organize verses 28 through 48 around the following theme and subpoints. Here's our heading. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember. As I said before, the wicked forget, but the righteous remember the following. Number one, from verses 28 through 31, the wicked forget, but the righteous remember the jealousy of God. What could that mean? We'll find out in context. The righteous remember the jealousy of God. Number two, verses 32 through 33, the propriety, that means exclusive ownership, of God's word. Exclusivity, you could say, of God's word. Number three, the wicked forget, but the righteous remember the horror of idolatry. It's verses 34 through 39. And our fourth and final point this morning, God willing, the righteous forget, but the, or the wicked forget, but the righteous remember God's purposes in two things, discipline and deliverance. God's purposes in discipline and deliverance. That would be verses 40 through 48. So let us look at our text today in verses 28 through 31, which emphasize to us that the wicked forget, but the righteous remember the jealousy of God. This is referenced to an incident in Numbers 25. So if you'd like to turn there to that cross-reference, we'll touch on it in a moment. Psalm 106, 28 says, Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. A Baal is a name for a false god. Peor is the name of a region. So typically, the false idols, the false gods, would take on a kind of regional or parochial identity. So Baal of Peor had slightly different ideas connected to it, slightly different imagery, let's say, than Baal of a different area like Babylon or something like that. So the people yoked, that means they unified, they connected themselves to, they perversely bound themselves in covenant to this false deity, this Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead, it says in verse 28. Verse 29, they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and here we have a, an example of God's justice in a plague breaking out. It says, and a plague broke out among them. Verse 30, and Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Turn to Numbers 25. The first two points under the jealousy of God illustrate to us why God was jealous. Why was God jealous? Well, for two reasons. Number one, his covenant was being perverted. And number two, there was flagrant immorality in the camp. Perversion of the covenant, flagrant immorality moved the Lord to jealousy. What does it mean for God to be jealous? It's important probably to define our terms because there is a quite the contrast between jealousy as we think of it and our modern use of the term, the most frequently, you know, a definition that most frequently applied to the term is that somebody has a sort of petty or petulant, maybe a compul or a obsessive desire for someone and cannot stand that to share their attention with anyone. This would be sort of a pathological definition, a sort of not a virtue, but a vice definition of jealousy. That's not what is referred to here. The jealousy of God perhaps could be defined as this. You could write this down perhaps. 
the commitment of God to the holiness and honor of himself and his own. What is the jealousy of God? Perhaps you could say it is the commitment of God to the holiness and honor of himself and his own. We're talking the jealousy of one who rightly defends that which he is called to protect. We're talking the jealousy of one who rightly preserves the integrity and virtue of one who is vulnerable, let's say, and under his charge and threatened by enemies throughout. So if there is a threat to the holiness and the well-being, the purity and the chastity of his people, God in his jealousy will rise in his commitment to defend his own holiness and honor, first and foremost, and secondly, the holiness and honor of his people. And so he did in this instant. In the context of this perverse covenant yoking to idolatry in the Baal of Peor, the Lord rose up in his jealousy and preserved his own commit, or he preserved his own holiness and honor and bringing harsh judgment at this time. Notice in Numbers 25.1, here's the background. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So immediately, in the context here, we have reference to perversion of covenant. What does it mean to whore? It's to prostitute, to go into an illegitimate covenant relationship with those who are outside the boundary of what is sanctioned in this context, marriage. But this is much more than just a violation of the marriage covenant. This is a violation of the covenant relationship between God and his people. He had given them particular terms and boundaries to remain holy, set apart, and not to contaminate themselves with the ideas and the relationships of the pagans around them, which would cause them to renounce portions of their faith or desecrate that which was holy and ultimately water down the message of true and pure and unadulterated gospel hope in the sacrificial system, which pointed forward to the one Messiah who could cleanse sins. If the people lost the testimony of God's revelation of where atonement really is to be found, and then they, they lost their cultural identity insofar as it represented a people set apart, marked by a holy God to preserve the legacy and testimony of the gospel, then the hope for a future Messiah and the hope for that message going to the next generation would be lost. Thus the Lord, in jealousy to preserve the testimony of the gospel, rose to defend his own honor and his holiness and bringing judgment on the covenanted, covenantally perverse. Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. This term yoking is to bind by illegitimate covenant to something that is wicked and desecrated. It is something that is contaminated and perverse. So you have this picture in your mind of, say, a yoke uh, connecting you to a dead corpse. How long could you carry around a dead corpse on your back? How long could you be handcuffed to a zombie before that death and decay and that leprous condition and that de uh, decrepit, dilapidated, uh, dying flesh would affect you? Personally, you see, you have to separate yourself from that which is morally unclean in order to maintain spiritual health. That's the picture here. But in this covenant, in this perversion of covenant, the people bound themselves to 
this uh, in unholy and perverse ways to this people and to this false god, Baal of Peor. We find some more insight as to the nefarious purpose of this arrangement in Numbers 31, 16. Back up to 15, Numbers 31, 15. Moses said to them, have you let the women live? So these are the women that were actually seducing the people, the men in the Israelite camp. And they were supposed to be killed in this act of judgment. Many of them were spared. And now there's an accounting for this negligence. Verse 16, Moses continues, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and every woman who has known man by lying with him. This is helpful. It gives us an insight as to the subversive, tactical nature of this whole campaign, this whole affair. This is on the heels of the prophet Balaam refusing to give a, to pronounce a curse over the people of God because God in his sovereignty just wouldn't let this prophet declare a curse on the people of Israel in spite of the king's money and his command, King Balak. But uh, since this plan A didn't work, Balaam came up with a plan B. And he told Balak, this pagan king, he said, do you want to defeat this people? You know, on the, on the external, they're impervious. So we, we, I can't do it. I can't go against the word of God. But there may be a Trojan horse, as it were, on the heart. Send out your women to seduce them and see if you can't uh, draw them into illicit and immoral relationships. And after that, you will, over time, sow the seeds of their own destruction. This is the purpose of immorality as a weapon against the people of God, really as a weapon against any people. History records that if you break down the moral discipline of a culture, they're much more malleable, much more susceptible to central control, much more easily conquered. A man who can be self-disciplined over his passions is much stronger in the fight than a man who is a slave to his appetites, a woman the same way. What is one, of the, one, one reason why pornography, for instance, should not be tolerated in society and is such a systemic evil is it is a tool in the hand of the enemy to break down the discipline of a nation, to overrun a people, to break down the social order, and to make them ripe for the picking, for centralized control, and for an army to absolutely decimate and take over the whole society. I wonder if you've thought about things in these terms before. You know, at first read, the unbeliever reads this and says, oh, that's so harsh, I could never believe in a God who would do such a thing. That's to miss the jealousy of a holy God who will defend his honor and the holiness of a people and preserve the message of the gospel against one of the most insidious enemies of all, the subversive immorality that would come and corrupt the heart and destroy and wipe out a whole people and with it the line of the Messiah. Are you not thankful that God issued by his perfect wisdom sanctions for such a violent and such a horrific effort? He certainly did. Covenant perversion is no small thing. It moves God to jealousy. And in the interest of fighting for his own honor and the holiness of his people, he will not wink at sin. He will take it seriously. And he roots it out right down root and branch to its very sores. This flagrant immorality was such that there, it was illustrated by this event in verse 6. This is not light reading. 
And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. Listen, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. It's on, he said, in so many words. Now, what's going on here? So there is a wicked relationship. There is a prostitute relationship. There is a breaking of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, presumably, in this instance. And it's done right out in the open, flagrantly among the people. This is a parading of sin in something akin to an out-of-the-closet, bold, blasphemous disregard for the righteous standards of God's law. This illustrates a people, a society, that moved from keeping their sin in the closet to coming out of the closet. This illustrates the sin of a society that once kept their flagrant immorality in their heart and then began to parade it pridefully in the streets. Sound familiar? When gay pride parades fill our streets, when flagrant immorality is worn on the sleeve, when lasciviousness is declared as a virtue, when perversion of covenant and multiple sexual identities are embraced as a common good, then you know principally you're in a situation very similar to what we're reading here. This uh, woman was taken into an illicit relationship in full view of God's people defiling and desecrating the sacred habitation. This act was done in full view of a worship service where the people had gathered to honor, to revere, to set apart, to repent, and to worship the Lord. And now this act of desecration was taking place in this context. This was covenant perversion. This is flagrant immorality. God does not take it lightly. And since he is moved and committed to holiness and honor and defending as much of himself and his people, he acted through his agent of justice, Phineas, in a very decisive way. Phineas has taken up the spear. What does he do with it? Verse 8, he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced them both through. He pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the son of the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. You see, the wicked forget the jealousy of God, but the righteous remember. Phinehas, the righteous man, the servant of God's, agent of God's justice, in this moment, remembered the jealousy of the Lord and committed this just act of retribution against a desecration of the holy by killing these two offenders. Verse 12, therefore say, behold, I give to, my, to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Listen, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Again, is this story shocking in your ears? Does this offend your modern sensibilities? Well, before you dismiss it, listen to this last phrase again. In this act, he made atonement for the people of Israel. What is illustrated here is that atonement requires someone must die for our sins. These people were killed, and as a picture of atonement, it satisfied the wrath of God provisionally, and the plague was stayed, though 24,000 did die on that day. 
But this priestly act of intervention where the wrath of God was taken on a substitute or a representative on behalf of the people, if you read further, you find both of them were important figures, the man and the woman. One was a prince and the other was a princess among their peoples, thus illustrating federal headship. But what this was was a picture of what Christ would be. There would come one day a perfect and holy man who would be pierced through with a sword. Why? Because someone must die for your sins. Before you dismiss this incident right here, know that the gospel is being proclaimed and preached when the jealousy of God, whose commitment to his own holiness and honor and defense of his glory and his own is illustrated by this act of just killing. Now, Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions and our iniquities. On his stripes, we are healed. And that is what this message here foretells. And if you appreciated the fear of God that this story ought to engender, you would also appreciate the fear of God and the holy act of sacrifice that Jesus purchased for us, that Jesus accomplished for us on Calvary. This is something the wicked forget, dismiss, reject, despise, but the righteous remember. The righteous remember. What does it mean to remember? Last week we went over this biblical definition. more than just maintaining a factual record. Biblically, to remember something is to retain a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate in light of God's revealed truth. To retain a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate in light of God's revealed truth. So I ask you, what is a frame of mind and a pattern of behavior appropriate in light of this incident of God's judgment uh, following the Baal of Peor perversion of covenant? That is really the message that Psalm 106 would have us take away, something the righteous remember. Major point number two. More briefly, the propriety of God's word. This is reference to Numbers chapter 20 and the waters of Meribah incident. Notice in our text, though, in Psalm 106, our primary text today, how these, these moments are recounted by our author. Quote, they angered him, verse 32, at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. The second major thing the wicked forget, but the righteous remember in our message today is the propriety of God's word. That is, the exclusiveness of the word of God. The precision of God's word. God's word is not up for review, for alteration, for amendment, and for twisting by anyone, not even Moses. Now at this time in Numbers chapter 20, as we pick up on the account, we find that what has happened is the people of God were once again complaining. And by this time, we can empathize with Moses, who is extremely frustrated there was no water for the congregation, Numbers 20, verse 2. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished with our brothers, perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And they go on like this. Moses is given instructions by the Lord in verse 8. God says, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, before their eyes to yield the water. Tell the rock. Kids, is that what Moses did in the second time? Did he speak to the rock or did he do something else, kids? That's correct. He did not speak to the rock so as to give water. He hit the rock. 
Hear now, you rebels, Moses says in verse 10. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, now listen, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Once again, you might think, wow, that's a harsh indictment for slightly modifying God's instructions. It was the same rock after all. Instead of speaking, he hid it. But notice, the word of God is holy, set apart. It's not to be touched. It's to be revered. It's to be held as consecrated and sacred, not to be twisted, manipulated, uh, uh, interpreted in a self-serving way, or to be altered or twisted in any sense at all. And when Moses... Uh, when Moses disobeyed God's words to speak and instead struck, it was a significant, horrific offense. Think of God's word versus the passions of men. One thing, one principle we could draw from this incident is that the emotions of man, our feelings, our outrage, our fears, our frustrations, our anxieties, our desires, our preferences, our proclivities, our predispositions do not void, are not grounds for amending, and do not trump the word of God. Never. Our feelings, our emotions, our outrage, our fears, our frustrations, anxieties, desires, our uh, predilections, our proclivities, our preferences, anything by way of this long list to modify the action and the, the, the uh, consciousness of the human individual is to be brought in subjection to the word of God, never to compete or to amend it. Think of when you're confessing sin to your spouse or to your children. Let's say, uh, fathers, I'm sure you've been there with me. You lose your temper. You raise your voice. You speak out of turn. You overreact, albeit the child was committing some offense. Or let's say you have an argument with your wife because you just see how unreasonable. Or let's say you uh, despise really what your husband says, ladies, and you respond in a dismissive way. Now let's say you go back and you repent. Here's how not to repent. Well, son, I'm sorry for what I said, but you can understand my reaction because you were really being unreasonable. That's how not to repent. Here's how you repent. Son, I have transgressed God's law, and I have asked God for forgiveness for falling short of his glory. That was wrong of me, and it's my duty to display lawfulness, not ungodliness to you. That's how you repent. When you go to your spouse, this is not, uh, honey, I'm sorry for overreacting, but I hope you can understand how frustrated I was when you said X. It's how not to repent. Here's how you repent. Honey, I overreacted last night. I did not model the steadfast love of the Lord that's been modeled to me and my calling to lead you as Christ leads the church. I would humbly ask for your forgiveness as I seek to walk more in line with him and his example for me. Now, why do I bring these two examples up? They hit a little closer to home, right? Maybe, you know, I, don't, I suspect, by God's grace, not many of you are whoring after other women in a neighboring pagan camp. But some of you might have cause to repent tonight. And you may be tempted to transgress God's law by modifying his word. And if you repent with qualifications, what do you do? You raise your emotions, you raise your feelings, and the things that affect you to the level of God's word to give a little justification for your reaction, you see? But Moses 
this incident at Meribah teaches us the propriety of God's word, how exclusive it truly is. This is something the righteous are called to remember, but the wicked forget. God's word is to be held, set apart, sacred, holy, a standard by which we all judge, are all judged falling short, a standard to repent to, not a standard to be dismissed, modified, or minimized in any kind of way. There would be one, furthermore, we learn from this text that there would be one greater than Moses who would come. Cross-references for future study, Deuteronomy 18.15, Deuteronomy 18.15. This is referenced in Peter's sermon in Solomon's porch or portico in Acts 3.22 through 26. A greater than Moses would arise. This one is identified in Hebrews 7.27, Hebrews 9.12, Hebrews 9.26, Hebrews 10.10. These are all in your printed notes if you want to study later. In these notes or in these references, Jesus Christ is identified as the greater Moses. He is the one who followed God's word perfectly, submitted to the will of the Father without amendment, alteration, twisting, or failing in any degree. And as such, he is the perfect prophet, priest, king, and sacrifice. And as such, he is the one who is holy enough to die in our place and procure atonement once and for all. And all those Hebrews references four times over announce that. Once and for all the elect, the holy Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, died in your place. And this is what the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. The office of Moses spoke of a greater one still, a greater Moses, who would fulfill the law, who would act perfectly, who would uphold God's word, who would be struck but once for the sins of the people. Incidentally, why was it so bad that Moses strike the rock more than once? Well, that rock, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, was a picture of Christ in the wilderness. Paul associates the rock with Christ himself. And the message that God intended to convey through that symbolic act is Christ is struck once. That was the original instruction where the rock gave forth water. And from that striking of the rock Christ comes a stream of living water. But it is not as the Catholics teach. A, or a sacrifice that is represented every time the Mass you know, opens with the representing of the real yet unbloodied sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that is blasphemy by what? By this accounting right here. The rock, Jesus Christ, was struck but once on Calvary, and that sacrifice was sufficient for all who trust and believe in Him. This is the propriety of God's Word and the exclusivity of His sacrifice that is proclaimed. And this is what Psalm 106 emphasizes and tells us the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. Number three, the horror of idolatry. The horror of idolatry. Back in our major text this morning, we pick up in verses 34 through 39 of Psalm 106. They did not destroy the peoples. And of course, this is Israel on the threshold of the promised land. They disobeyed the Lord. They did not remove from the land the, the idolaters and the pagan peoples. They did not destroy them as the Lord had commanded them. Verse 35. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember the horror of idolatry. Syncretism, what is it? It's a term that refers to attempting to combine 
Two things that are totally opposed, totally opposite. Uh, so kids, um, do you guys know where the septic system is out here? Um, what's a septic system? So whenever you flush a toilet, that's where everything goes, right? So there's usually two lids, gray circles, concrete. I want you to imagine, a, uh, nobody ever do this, by the way. Not that you would. I want you to imagine something. You uh, make a cup of tea. I know a lot of you kids like to make a cup of tea in the back. Instead of dumping in, you know, five spoons of sugar or whatever you do, you take that cup of tea and you go out to the uh, yard right here and you get your buddies and you scoot that, um, th that lid aside. You reach down with the spoon very carefully and you dip out a little of that raw sewage and you pour it into your tea and you mix it up. Who here would drink it? I didn't think so. Well, you <laughs> thanks for ruining my analogy. No, if you drank it, you'd be a fool. You'd probably get cholera. And I don't know if COVID-19 is a real thing, but whatever you'd catch from that, that'd be a real thing. Uh, political commentary on this pandemic aside. I don't discount that there is difficulties in the health of you know, uh, America's general. Enough disclaimers. So just to illustrate the analogy, though, one spoon, uh, this is syncreta, uh, syncretization illustrated, one spoon of sewage in anything contaminates the whole, and you drink it at your own peril. And so it is with ungodliness and wickedness. So it is with idolatry. Any tempting to meld or to put into two or, or to combine two things that ought to be mutually and exclusively separated from one another is to pervert the whole. And so this is what was happening. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul refers again to this idea of yoking that our author has used in verse 28 and was a reference to uh, Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 25, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Paul goes on to expound. He says, do not be unequally yoked with anything. What fellowship has light with darkness? Again, it's a prohibition against covenant perversion. But we see that uh, what is involved in these kinds of horrific relationships. We saw that it was deserving of death in the Baal of Peor incident. But here we see that it leads to a wickedness that justifies child massacre. Verse 36, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. This is the horror of idolatry. It is a child massacre endeavor. In the end, the casualties are the innocent among us, the most vulnerable, the least able to defend themselves, end up being slaughtered on the altar of the wickedness and the syncretism of the people. The horror of idolatry means that in pursuing the wicked practices of the pagans around them, they end up pouring out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. They sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. Now before, well, let me give you a, an, a, the a nature of sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is a valuable and presentable offering to appease the perceived powers motivated by devotion or fear. Again, a sacrifice, religiously speaking, it's a valuable and presentable offering to appease the perceived powers motivated by devotion or fear. That's what a sacrifice is at root. May I submit, religiously, there will be sacrifice. There will be religion. There will be worship. There will be perceived authority. There will be some attempt at atonement there will be the shedding of blood. It's a reality of the human condition. It's just a question of whose. 
blood will be shed. Again, with our short-sighted, self-justifying, narcissistic, megalomaniacal, that's hard to say, megalomaniacal attitude, a modern, you know, Western hubris, that means pride, we might read this and think, oh, how primitive the idol worshipers were back then, sacrificing their children, just like the Mayans used to do in the Mesoamerican region, and they offer them up, or the altars of Molech, they burn their children in the fire. What are you missing? What are you missing in this short-sighted indictment, the chronological snobbery, as some call it, you know, pointing the finger back at history when there's four more pointed back at you. You're missing the atrocity of abortion, which I submit to you as eclipsed by multiples of thousands and thousands, the casualties of the innocent and the young than any of the death count that was racked up in the worship of Baal, of Peor, or Molech, that God who sought in his bloodthirsty revenge, or Pharaoh, uh, the death of the innocents, or Pharaoh who threw them in into the river or Herod, Herod who slaughtered them in Bethlehem. No, we've eclipsed the death and the infanticide and the whole scale massacre of the innocents by thousands and thousands in this day because we are shedding the blood of our unborn daughters and sons on the altar of the pagan gods of our day, either by devotion or by fear. The innocent are being slaughtered as a consequence of idolatry. It is an inescapable reality that human sacrifice is the cost of atonement. I was listening to a stupid podcast this week, and the guy was an uh, atheist, and he was just throwing it out there. You know, he was remarking about the peace accord or whatever that was reached this week between Israel and United Arab Emirates or so, and something of that kind. He said, you know, with religion receding into the background, maybe there'll be more opportunity for peace in the future. Stupid, stupid assessment. Look at the most secular, non-religious, quote-unquote, era of human history, the last century, and the bodies are piled no higher, not even close, any time on the altars of paganism, socialism, leftism, and liberalism, and so forth, in the Soviet Union, in abortion in our day, and so forth, and the death count continues. Hitler, Stalin, America, the blood of the innocents is piling up. It illustrates to us Someone must die for sins. And the cost of atonement is a blood sacrifice. And somewhere deep in our psyche, that's so ingrained into the reality of God's world, we can't escape it. But talk about perversions when you don't have the right sacrifice. You will slaughter millions on the altar of your Baal, your Asherah, your Molech, whatever it is today. You will slaughter millions if you do not believe that Jesus Christ was killed for your transgressions. And by that once and for all sacrifice, and by the precious blood we sang of today, is sufficient covering for the sins of a people or a whole nation, so long as they repent. This is what the wicked forget, but the righteous remember. And the wicked forget at the cost of millions and millions of unborn children, in our context, dying. This pollutes the land. They sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. They became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. For cross-reference in later study, Numbers 35, 30-34, lays out the principle of justice known as blood pollution. The idea, the, the concept is this, that the land, so long as there is unprosecuted murder, murder is known and yet not dealt with justly in a land, will corrupt that society inescapably until that, until that act, that violation of God's law, is dealt with 
by the proper civil authorities and so forth. Until that time, a land lives under the ticking time bomb and guillotine, the hanging knife of God's judgment, and at any time, he would justly hit that hair trigger and remove us from the face of the earth. Now, I'm here to submit to you again that in the consciousness of the yet hardened and rebellious American average sinner, there's this sense of pending doom. There's this sense of we deserve something bad. I'm going to prove it to you. One of the number one, well, pre-COVID fears was the environment. We're so worried about pollution, at least those who make policy were. They told us that we need a Green New Deal, which is basically to outlaw a million things and then to spend trillions of dollars. Otherwise, we're going to die within 12 years. Oh, it just so happens the left has their eschatology too. It just so happens that the left wing and our country has their own version of the apocalypse. They write their own left behind books. And they tell us that if we don't do something to save our environment, the earth itself will rise up in vengeance against those who are desecrating her holy seashores and, and will send us all to pagan hell, which I guess means just whole scale human destruction. You see, this is a paganism. This ascribes vengeance and wrath to the earth itself and denies what we truly should live in fear of, which is the guillotine knife of God's judgment hanging over us because this land is guilty of blood pollution, the slaughter of the innocents. Next time you hear a politician like AOC or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or maybe even anybody on the so-called right talk about the imminent threat of this or that, think of what the real imminent threat is. What do the wicked forget but the righteous remember? That when there is unprosecuted murder taking place in a land, now, we should not rest because we stand guilty of God's just laws and he is jealous to preserve his holiness and his honor and will not rest until that blood that cries out from Abel to the last slaughter of the innocents is taken care of in one fell swoop at the final day when he comes in and says enough is enough on his day of reckoning. And you see... When we remember this, it changes our mindset and our pattern of behavior, does it not? Now, on Wednesday this week, some of us plan to go to a place of slaughter where, on average, I'm told some, is it 15, John, or I don't know if John and Alyssa are here, 15 or 22 women, I can't remember exactly the count, go to Fargo, Minnesota to have their babies pulled from their womb and killed. It's called abortion, but let's call it what it is, the murder of the innocents, the sacrifice of the unborn. I plan to preach this message on the street in Fargo on Wednesday and to call for repentance out in the open air. We did it once before. There's many who do that. Many of them are my heroes. I feel an increasing pull from the Lord. As long as this culture wants to take their outrage into the streets, I feel compelled to take the gospel out there. That's the only thing that will bring hope to this nation. And one thing a true message will contain for the lost and dying running to slaughter their own children, feet swift to shed innocent blood, is that they stand under the judgment and wrath of God unless and until they repent of murder and trust that Jesus Christ was killed so they don't have to be. That is the message of hope and redemption and atonement that actually has the power to save that actually has the power to move a culture from Molech worship and child slaughter to fearing a holy God who is jealous for his character and his holiness and his people.
Let's close this message with one final point. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember. The jealousy of God, the proprietary, the propriety of his word, the horror of idolatry, and finally, God's purposes in discipline and deliverance. God in his steadfast love, in his covenant-keeping long-suffering, which he has extended, yes, even to us, has purposes in it. Number one, to bring us low, to humble us. Verse 40, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nation so that they, those who hated them, ruled over them. Let me pause for application. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the fear of COVID-19, into the hand of a disease that hated them. You see? You can almost see this principle playing out right before us, even in our day and age. We are given over to all kinds of fears of utter destruction and collapse and ruin. Why? Well, should we not understand that this may well be the discipline of the Lord showing his anger against us in a provisional degree that would move us to repent of the crimes against his holiness and place our hope in his Savior, in his Messiah? It says of this, these eras of exile, verse 42, their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. In bringing a people low, God will bring them in subjection to something over them. They, he might even bring them in subjection to the fear of a virus so tiny you need a powerful microscope to see it. He brought Herod in subjection to worms that ate out his corpse. I love the picture. Herod says, I, you know, he receives the worship as if he were a god. God strikes him dead and the worms eat him from the inside out. The lowliest and least sentient of all God's creatures declared dominion over the once uh, self-proclaimed God. That's what happens. When a culture says, I am God, God shows us that we, are, uh, we bow before a virus, even smaller than the worm that ate Herod. And we quake in fear at what that virus could do to us. This is the discipline of the Lord, may I suggest. And what is it designed to do? It's designed to bring us low. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes. They were brought low through their iniquity. Now, another instance, another example. People tell me, or I, you hear from time to time, oh, isn't it amazing the most prosperous nation that ever lived, the most powerful world power that ever existed in the land of the free and the home of the brave, these two you know, prospective presidential candidates are the best that we have? What gives? We got an early onset dementia patient against a petulant childhood bully, you know, picking three-year-old insults in the playground, duking it out on national television, and the whole world is gripped to see the fallout of this clown show. What the heck is going on, people ask. Well, could it not be that the Lord is bringing us low and these positions in society that were supposed to be the great statesmen, supposed to be inhabited by the great statesmen and the great accomplished ones, those who have the integrity and the ability and the competence to rule over us are shown to be fools? What is the purpose of this? To humble us. Now the Lord, nevertheless, even in times like ours and in times like these, preserves his covenant. Verse 45, for their sake he remembered his covenant, praise the Lord for his steadfast love, and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The Lord did not give the people everything that they deserved. And therefore, many of these interventions were disciplined. They gave opportunity to repent. And while we as Americans are still alive, we have that same opportunity 
Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. The Lord has relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. We deserve a sulfur hail storm like Sodom and Gomorrah, yet here we are. Let us not squander this time, especially as his people, but proclaim today is the day to turn from your reprobate behavior, from your lasciviousness, from your idolatry, and to worship the one true God. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And then there's this cry, and I hope we echo this in our hearts today, verse 47 and 48. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Let's hear it again. Praise the Lord. God's purpose is in discipline and deliverance to bring low, to show that our idols are stupid and that he alone is sovereign. His purposes in discipline and deliverance are to preserve his covenant. The message of the gospel now, I submit to you, is a little more clear because there's even a pruning of some of the so-called churches in America. For the first time, perhaps in our history, there's a little higher cost to gather Sometimes you do so in defiance of and ostensibly in the interest of our own health edict by your governor of your state. We do so, we come unmasked, unveiled, singing before the Lord, proclaiming his word and saying we have a higher authority to answer to. And in so doing, perhaps the church, even in our day, will ring with more clarity and contrast against the backdrop of the sniveling fear, and of the whole-scale rebellion and the gross atrocities of our culture. This may be the very means that God uses to gather more of his elect from among the nations. Psalm 106 was presumably written in a time of exile, but there was hope for this man. In chains, in a country not his own, there's hope for us. We can identify. First Peter 1 and 2, sojourners, exiles. Remember, kids, we are exiles because we are little pop quiz for you. We are exiles because we are? We are chosen. We are elect because we are chosen. We are exiles because we are? Travelers. Travelers are far from home. Very good. So just even so, in times like these, God, the Lord, gathers from all nations his remnant. Why? So that, that they might give thanks to his holy name and glory in his praise. Our worship text this morning was Revelation 7, 9 through 12. That's that familiar text where every tribe and tongue and nation are represented in glorious worship of the Lamb. That's a picture of the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 106, where even in eras of God's discipline and partial exile, the people cry out knowing He will be true to His covenant. He will yet gather a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and for this purpose, again, God's purpose is in discipline and deliverance, not just to bring low, not just to preserve covenant, but to preserve a people who will glory in his praises, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. What does it sound like? Verse 48 tells us, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And one more time, and let all the people say, amen. 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 Good job. This is what the Glorious praise, the worship sounds like, to bless the Lord, to ascribe to him truly the, the truth that is in accordance with his nature and his character. And let us remember this as book four of the Psalter closes. 
And let us be mindful and remember these eras of covenant history and interpret our own times in light of them. Again, taking two sermons together, here are the major points. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember the true hope of glory is the Lord himself. He is their true source of provision. The cost of rebellion is high, in fact, hell itself. The place of promise is the place of reconciliation through the Messiah, God and man, Mount Zion, fulfilled in Christ. The wicked forget, but the righteous remember the jealousy of God, that he is committed to the honor and holiness of himself and his own. Furthermore, the righteous remember the propriety, the exclusiveness of God's word, the horror of idolatry. And finally, they recognize that his purposes in events like this in history and even in our day in discipline and deliverance are to call for himself a people from every corner, nook, and cranny of this globe to give him glorious praise. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the message of your holy word. We thank you for the encouragement and the strengthening that it gives us as we process ourselves in light of the framework of its truth. Where we find ourselves falling short, may your spirit use your scripture to convict us of sin that we might be sanctified, set apart, more like Christ, repenting of the old life and embracing the walk of fear and holiness in the lifestyle that Christ our Lord modeled in his sinless law keeping. May we be more like him. We pray that as your word is dwelt upon and memorized and proclaimed and articulated and applied in each believer's life, that the message of hope in Christ would go forth through their testimony of word and deed and call the lost to repentance. Should it be your will, we know that your gospel proclaimed on the street corners of even this city across Lake Minnesota has the power to gather the lost from the darkness and depravity and death of sin unto resurrection life in Christ Jesus. Help us have faith and believe in the miracle-working, revival-sparking, death-raising power of your unadulterated gospel. And may we stand on this. If you give us no converts like Jeremiah and Isaiah, if you give us a whole city like, no, like Jonah and Nineveh, nevertheless, may we, your people, be moved to more covenant faithfulness as a result of digesting your holy scriptures to the praise of Jesus Christ in his great name. We pray, amen.